0: Most people underestimate their ability to increase their income. For sure, increasing your income is not as hard as you think it is, whether that's working some overtime, asking for a raise, changing jobs, starting a side gig, etc. I'm continually impressed at how easy it is to increase your income when you really put your mind to it.
1: Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody
2: and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, but I could not be doing this thing alone, so what's up, Justin? Doing good, Cody. We're just coming off Memorial Day weekend, and uh, this just
1: yesterday, on Memorial Day, I took some time out and got to do some of that reflection on what Memorial Day is all about, including doing a workout called the Murph that some of the people out there might be familiar with, and then the rest of the
2: week heading down to Florida for work. What are you up to, Cody? Well, I just got back from Camp Fi. If you can tell, maybe you can't, hopefully not. My voice is a little hoarse. It was a lot of fun. I got to hang out with a lot of really cool people. We were in down in Spring Grove, Virginia. So it was like 95 degrees and it was absolutely awesome. Now I'm back. I'm in New York City right now, actually recording this from Grant's apartment. The van tire blew out and I was not able to get back home, but I will be home tomorrow for the first time in three months. But enough about us, Justin. We had an awesome guest on this week, the White Coat Investor, Jim Dolly. Take it away, Jim.
0: I love that it sounds like I've done everything right. You know, one of the best <laughs> parts about my blog is that I've made all the mistakes my readers have made. And so I'm able to kind of talk to them from a perspective of having been where they are. Honestly, though, I, I made most of the usual mistakes. I just made them early on with small amounts of money. And so it didn't end up costing me that much. I don't know. Where did my journey start? Probably halfway through my residency. I was in a residency to become an emergency physician. I'd already done four years of college. I'd already done four years of med school. I was halfway through residency, and I realized I still don't know anything about money. I don't know anything about finance. And Every time I interact with a financial professional, whether it's a recruiter or a mortgage lender or a financial advisor or an insurance agent, I end up getting the raw end of the deal. I felt like I kept getting ripped off. And so I thought, well, if I don't learn this stuff, this is just going to keep happening over and over and over again. So I decided I was going to learn it just for my sake. And I lived next to a used bookstore. I went over there and started reading financial books. And what I found is that I really liked it. I found it interesting, which I never did as an undergrad or even in medical school. You know, I was all science all the time. I wasn't interested in business or personal finance or investing, but I got interested in it and I I learned a whole bunch about it, read a bunch of terrible books, read a few good books. And uh, then started interacting online with bloggers and on forums. And after a few years, realized I'm doing a whole lot more teaching of this than I am learning. And nobody is out there teaching this to doctors and similar high-income professionals. So I just decided I would start the White Coat Investor. So I quit typing the same thing over and over again into internet forums. So I just wanted to be able to post a link to that question that I answered the last time. And that was really the beginning of the White Coat
1: Investor in 2011. And when you got to that point, were you about 28 years old or what was the what was your age then?
0: When I was in residency, that was I was probably 29 at that point. You know, I had just, maybe I'd been making an actual salary for a year at that point. You know, as a resident, I think I was getting paid $37,000 a year. So, I mean, it beat undergrad, right? I mean, I was donating plasma to buy food as an undergrad, but, you know, <laughs> we felt like we had money coming out of our ears at that point. But, you know, looking back, it wasn't that much
2: money. Oh, yeah. I've been there. Not so <laughs> not so far away. But Jim, I kind of want to hop back a little bit. I know you kind of discovered money and started learning a lot about like the intricacies of the tax code and like actually how to handle your money, how to fire your financial advisor. But I think I heard, or maybe it was on the, your blog or something, that you dabbled in options with your dad when you were younger. So it sounds like there was some like money talk in the house. You've been
0: digging if you found that pearl. I haven't talked about that very often. <laughs> My first investment was $500 in options. I don't even know what it was an option on, (laughs) but I must've been 10, 12. And one of my dad's friends talked him into buying an option. And I had some money from the Alaska permanent fund dividend that, you know, all the residents of Alaska get each year. And so he talked me into going along with him, and we both lost everything. You know, I was completely wiped out. It was a hundred percent loss. That was my first exposure and my only exposure to options. And uh, I suspect that is not an unusual situation for people who dabble in options.
2: But so I just want to paint a clearer picture. Like, was money something that was talked about a lot in your house? Were your parents like financial professionals or did they know what they were doing with their money? Because it's not every day that a dad and his 12-year-old son go going to invest in options together.
0: Yeah, that's what was so crazy about it, right? It was totally insane. No, my grandparents on each side, one was a miner and the other was a farmer. You know, that's, that's kind of the upbringing I come from. My mom didn't complete college. My dad was an electrical engineer. And so I guess we were a middle-class family. There wasn't a lot of money extra. I remember I couldn't play on some hockey teams I wanted to play on because we didn't have the money. I remember them sitting us down at one point and telling us that basically they were broke. They're out of money for the next few weeks, but we never starved. You know, there was always food on the table. There's a roof over our heads and we were able to, you know, participate in the activities at our public high school and and that sort of thing. So it wasn't some terribly difficult upbringing, but it wasn't a silver spoon either. And so I knew when I left for college that there wasn't any money coming with me. You know, my parents didn't have the money to support me in college. And, you know, when we all left the house at 18, that that was it, you know, they, they did their duty to us. And so I think that probably gave me a little bit more incentive to work hard and to learn a little bit about money, just because I knew I was on my own in that respect.
1: And so you left the house at like 18, like you said, with kind of carrying nothing with you, and, but at some point you decide you want to be a physician. And so you're looking at, you know, eight years of school. Did you have any concerns with the, you know, how you're going to finance that or what kind of debt you would end up in?
0: You know, yeah. I took out a loan for my freshman year. I borrowed $5,000 to pay for my living expenses as a freshman. I also, I applied to seven colleges. I got into all seven, but only one of them offered me a scholarship. It was a, a full tuition scholarship, and that's where I went. So that took care of tuition. The $5,000 I borrowed as a freshman took care of living expenses, and uh, I was a little smarter you know, by the time I was a sophomore and realized, hey, why am I borrowing this money? I can work my way through this. I can make money in the summers, and I can have a part-time job during school. And so I worked my way through the rest of my undergraduate education, came out the end of that pipeline owing $5,000. And at that point, I was engaged to be married. I got married the summer between undergraduate and medical school and realized that I had no way whatsoever to support a family. (laughs) And it was going to be a long time before I had any sort of an income. And so that combined with the fact that my wife was from a military family, her dad, you know, was an officer in the military. Her brother was at that point at the Air Force Academy and subsequently all Five of her brothers ended up in the military in some way, shape, or form. I think one of them dropped out after a couple of years of ROTC. But I actually decided to have the military pay for medical school. And so that was, you know, they call it a scholarship program. It really ought to be called the contract. You know, you're basically trading time later for money up front. But that was how I paid for med school. So by the time I came out of med school, I owed five grand. You know, that state of Alaska loan I took out as an undergraduate freshman.
1: Now, and so what was your connection to the military when you came out then?
0: Well, I owed the military a year for a year. So when
1: I finished my residency training, I
0: went on active duty for four years to pay off that obligation.
1: So when you came out, were you a captain or did you have to kind of start at the same rank as everybody else coming in the military?
0: So the way it works with the uh, HPSP, the Health Profession Scholarship Program Scholarship, is that as soon as you start medical school, they make you a second lieutenant, which is the first rank among the officers. So right there, you outrank 80% of the military, you know, you outrank all the enlisted folks. And then when you graduate from medical school, they make you a captain, which is the third rank for officers. And you, most of the time you spend your, all your time in the military as a captain. I made major the year before I got out, but unless you're going to stay longer, you're not going to become a Lieutenant Colonel or a Colonel. That's about as high as you're going to go. If you get out, as soon as your commitment is up.
2: So were you serving as a physician for these four years? I'm guessing you're like 28 to 32 or something like that? Well, when I came
0: out of residency, I was 31. Okay. So I came out of med school at 28. I came out of residency at 31. And that's when my four years started. You know, they wanted a fully trained doctor. That's what they paid the money for. And so they didn't want me for active duty until... I was a fully trained doctor. And so from 31 to 35, I was in the military and doing whatever they wanted me to do at their beck and call. And what they really wanted me to do was practice emergency medicine.
1: And were you on the same pay schedule as all the other officers like I am? No, it wasn't exactly the same.
0: I mean, you're on the same basic pay schedule. You get the same basic allowance for housing. You get the same basic allowance for subsistence, but you're eligible for three special pays. One of which is called the VSP, at least when I was in, that was about $5,000 a year. And the biggest one of which was called the ISP. I think that stood for incentive special pay, which for my specialty, as I recall, was about $31,000 a year. Hmm. So compared to another captain, I was making $36,000 a year more. The other special pay doesn't kick in until your commitment is up until I paid off those four years. If I then signed up for more time, there was another special pay that I was eligible for. But all in, it worked out to about $120,000 a year is what I was being paid as a military physician, which is not bad pay for a captain, as you know, but it's terrible pay for a physician. (laughs) So basically, the way it worked is the military, you know, put all this money up front, and then they paid me less later.
2: And in the end, it was all about the same, you know, and that's why I call it a contract instead of a scholarship. So I kind of want to thread your entrepreneurial timeline with your military or your regular career timeline. So at this point, you said you're 31 to 35. And is this one, I know you said it was in residency when you started devouring like the Morningstar forums or whatever it was, right?
0: Yeah, that was in residency that I started. It certainly continued during the time I was in the military. I wasn't really doing anything entrepreneurial while I was in the military. They had me working much too hard to do that. But I was just, you know, participating on online forums like the Bogleheads forum, that sort of a thing, you know, doing it basically for free.
2: So that persisted for how many years before the White Coat Investor became a thing?
0: Probably. I'd probably been on that forum seven years. Oh, wow. I mean, I think I had 10,000 posts on the forum. I was probably <laughs> the eighth most prolific poster. You know, I mean, when I started the blog, I was a known entity online. I didn't start from zero for sure. That was that was a big advantage. People knew who I was, and I already had experience answering most of their questions.
1: And when you were in these forums, were you still mostly focused at these high-income earners or other doctors, or did that not really niche down until you started the blog?
0: Well, I think there were two groups I was focused on while I was in there. One was military people, right, because I had this military connection. The other one was doctors, just because I had a doctor connection. I was just able to help those people out more because I could relate to their situations a little bit better. But you know, I mean it was I was helping everybody I could. That's the only way you come up with, you know, 10,000 posts on a forum. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be helping a lot of people. I mean, I, don't, I I don't know that I've gone back and calculated how many posts per day it was, but it was not insignificant. And then so as the White Coat Investor starts, what year did that start in actually? That was May 2011. To put it in perspective, it was about a month after Mr. Money Mustache began his blog. Oh wow, okay. I didn't know that for a couple of years. I don't think we knew of each other until about 2013, but
2: but it was about the same time. So blogs back then were a lot harder to develop. I mean, even from just to like go back end WordPress point of view than now and like to monetize, I think it might be, I'm not sure actually I didn't have a blog back then, but what like motivated you? I'm sure you spent dozens and dozens of hours to build it into what it's been today. Like what were those first few months or years like? Well, I had a, two motivations from the beginning. It was an entrepreneurial pursuit.
0: At that point, I had this crazy idea that I wanted some passive income you know, and that was part of the motivation for sure. It was a business from day one. I had ads on it on the first week. The other motivation was just to help doctors and other high income earners get a fair shake on Wall Street. You know, I mean, that really was the goal. And that's the passion that continues today. That's why I keep doing it. But you know, from the beginning, it was the goal was to make money. And so I actually talked to a couple of bloggers I knew from the forums about it and kind of picked their brain a little bit to see if this was something that was really a good idea. And those two bloggers I ought to give a shout out to. It was Harry Sitt at the finance buff and Mike Piper at the oblivious investor. And they were both encouraging. And I said, well, I'm going to want to try doing something similar to what you're doing, but just kind of for doctors. They said, yeah, well, here's what you ought to know. And they sent me to a few places to learn more. And, but there was, there was a steep learning curve. The truth is you can Google most of it though. How do I do this? Google it. How do I do this? Google it. And, you know, (laughs) there's blogs out there that'll take you through every step of how to do a blog, how to do a podcast, you name it, you know, but you really got to dig it out and put it all together. And that was not something that was totally new to me. I did that for finances. So I knew how to do it for something else. And I just taught myself how to blog basically.
1: And so once you get up and running and you've got this niche of, you know, physicians and high income earners, I'm just kind of curious as to you know, what it's like dealing with those type of people. Cause on one hand you would think, you know, if they get it because they earn so much money, like if it really clicks with them, it's just sky's the limit. They can retire so fast. But at the other, on the other hand though, they earn so much money that it's, I would assume that it's sometimes they look at it as like, well, I can just always make up for it later. So I'd just be interested if you could take us kind of in the mind of the top people that you're working with. Sure. It's an interesting mindset and it's fun to explain
0: it to people who aren't doctors because doctors will listen to this and they'll go, yeah, well, that's, of course that's the way it is. And everybody else is like, why aren't you freaking loaded? You know? <laughs> they're like, you make so much money. Why aren't you rich? You know? That's what everybody else says to them. Well, there's a few things working against doctors. One is they're financially illiterate. You know, nobody teaches you any of this finance stuff in college because you're majoring in molecular biology like I did or in medical school, or in residency. So here you are coming out of your pipeline, your medical training pipeline at 31 to 35, and all of a sudden they give you this big high salary, and you have no idea what you're doing. You have no clue. You're seriously clueless. The questions I get from doctors about money are so basic, it's embarrassing to me that these people are so brilliant and don't know the answers, right? It's terrible. But over and over again, I see that. So that's part of it. Another part of it is this expectation. The expectation among the doctors, among their family, particularly the partners that have been holding on for the last decade and deferring gratification, the expectation of their family members and of their patients that they are a doctor now, they're rich now, and they should be spending more money. They should have a nice car and a nice house and so on. So that's a big part of it too. And then there's a couple of more financial factors that are working against them. The first one is student loans, right? Instead of having your 20s to make money, you lived off loans for your twenties. And so it is not unusual at all for me now to run into a physician or a dentist who owes three hundred, four hundred, six hundred thousand dollars in student loans at seven percent. I mean that's like a mortgage on a mansion. And you don't have the mansion, you know? And so that's just hanging over their heads. And it's worse for the dentists, right? They come out, owing 600000 in student loans. They pick up a $500,000 mortgage. Now they've got a million-dollar practice loan because they bought into a practice. I mean, just right off the bat, they've got $2 million in debt. And so that eats up an awful lot of even a very nice income just to service that debt. And the worst part is you got this monopoly money mindset, right? You borrowed all this money as a first-year medical student. Maybe you borrowed fifty dollars or $60,000, and you've never made $50,000 in your life. You know, it's just monopoly money. You don't know how hard <laughs> this is going to be to pay back. So the debt is one factor. The other one that a lot of people don't appreciate is just how much doctors pay in taxes. It is not unusual for me to run into doctors who are paying literally 25 30 35% of their income in taxes. And when you're paying that much in taxes, that money can't go toward building wealth. So we have a very progressive tax system. It's actually very beneficial to early retirees. Those are some people that pay the least in taxes. But the fact is, it's it's not particularly beneficial for somebody who makes a lot of money as earned income. That's a good way to pay a lot of money in taxes.
2: So I think this is a perfect opportunity to kind of jump into some tangible like tips for the listeners, because we just love giving people actionable items that they can act on. So First, I want to tackle debt, and then we'll get into taxes for high-income earners. So what is your recommended strategy, I guess? Like, everybody's probably not going to go active-duty military. Are there some other options available to physicians or would-be physicians that they can drastically reduce their debt load? Sure. About three-quarters of physicians borrow
0: for medical school. They, they borrow the money. They take out student loans. The other 25%, they either have a wealthy family or they have some sort of contract with the military or National Health Service Corps or whatever. And that's totally reasonable. Medical school is still a good investment up to a certain point. And that point, in my opinion, is about 1x. 1x your eventual attending physician salary. So if you expect you're going to make $250,000 as an attending physician, I think it's okay to borrow up to $250,000. I think if you live like a resident, basically live like you're still on your resident salary for two or three or four years after residency, you can pay that off. And, and I think that's a good investment. Now, as you get out to 2X, you know, borrowing $500,000 for a $250,000 job, I think it can still be done. It's going to require a lot more sacrifice. For instance, you're going to have to put like 50% of your income toward those student loans for the first five years to pay them off. As you get beyond that, as you get to 3X and 4X, I don't think you made a good investment. I think this was a bad decision to borrow for a job that pays $250,000 a year. That was a bad idea. And you have to use some rather extreme techniques to get rid of that kind of debt. For instance, you can go for the Federal Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program and try to get that loan forgiven by working for a nonprofit full-time for 10 years and making payments. So that's one option. Another option is simply living like a resident for half your career. Which is really disappointing when you realize that that decision to borrow that much money means that that's what you're going to be doing. You spent all this time learning how to be a doctor and you've really got a very, very middle class wage. And I'm not talking the middle class where one person's a pharmacist and the other one's an engineer. I'm talking the middle class where, you know, you're living on $50,000 a year. And so I, I think that's disappointing to a lot of people to realize that that's really what that decision they made means. But at 1x, I mean, 1x is very doable. Just take it in the corner and drop an anvil on
1: it, you know? I think you can wipe that much
0: debt out pretty easily as a doctor.
1: And so going right into that 1X that and making that decision, for those of us who don't know, when you're looking at choosing your specific path as a physician, are there certain ones to look out for? Like, you know, being a pediatrician is a good idea versus not an anesthesiologist or, you know, those kind of ins and outs. If somebody's looking to choose their specific path, which are the ones that typically have an easier time hitting that 1X?
0: Well, I mean, the more you make, the more easier time you're going to have, right? Because medical school costs the same for everybody. And residency, you know, some dental residencies do have to pay tuition. But most physician residencies, you don't pay tuition. And so basically, it's what you borrow in medical school versus what you earn after you come out of residency. And any medical student who's actually paying even a little bit of attention will know that an anesthesiologist makes much more money than a pediatrician. You know, a typical pediatrician might only be making 150 200 if you're making two hundred fifty dollars or $300,000 as a pediatrician, you're doing very, very well. Whereas the average anesthesiologist might be making three hundred seventy-five dollars or $400,000, and many of them do even better. And so obviously, it's going to be way easier to knock out two or $300,000 in student loans when you're making half a million dollars than knocking out $300,000 in student loans when you're making $150,000. So I think one thing you can do is pick something that pays a little bit better. But at the same time, you don't want to choose a job just on what it pays. Because the most important factor is your career longevity. How long are you going to be able to do what you've signed up to do? And if you burn out in three years, well, that was a terrible choice, you know, even if it pays more. But if you can be a pediatrician for 30 years and enjoy the work and feel like you're making a difference, then you're going to come out way ahead of that anesthesiologist that burned out in four or five years.
1: And do you think that These students are armed with that information to say, like, this is probably what you'll make. This is probably what the lifestyle looks like. This is probably what you'll enjoy.
0: Not enough of them. Not unless they go out and arm themselves with it themselves. Part of the issue is when you're choosing a specialty is generally your third and maybe your early fourth year of medical school, which is like one of the most idealistic times of your life, (laughs) right? You're not focused on money. You're not focused on lifestyle. You're focused on learning how to be a great doc and take great care of patients, and you see these academic mentors and you're like, I want to do that. But those academic mentors never tell you the financial struggles they're having. Or worse, they didn't have those struggles because tuition was so cheap when they went to school. And when I enrolled in medical school in 1999, tuition was only $10,000 in state. And now you go to some medical schools and it's sixty or $70,000, you know. And so it's not the same situation those mentors went through. When I talk to older docs and tell them how much debt the younger docs often have, They can't believe it. It's just so different
2: from their experience. So to shift gears a little bit from debt to taxes and just like tax loopholes, maybe we can talk about, even though we've chatted about it a few times on the podcast before, like whether it's a backdoor Roth or a mega backdoor Roth or just some other tax code hacks, I guess you could say, for high income earners who maybe they don't have access to a Roth and they don't have access to some of these vehicles because they're making $400,000 a year. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis in my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth. One dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug-and-play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase, shopify.com slash to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Now back to the show.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think understanding how the tax code works. I mean, even a basic level understanding can pay huge dividends. I often tell people to do their taxes. Maybe even try doing them by hand. And at a minimum, if you're paying somebody else to do them, going over them and understanding how they work because I think there's real benefit to understanding the tax code. Because as you move to understand it, you start living your life differently. And that's what really lowers your tax burden is the life decisions you're making. When you save more for retirement, your tax bill goes down. You know, when you own your house, instead of renting it, oftentimes your tax bill goes down. Getting married, having a family often lowers your tax bill, et cetera, you know. And so just understanding how the code works, you can do a lot of things that make a difference. But what do high income earners do to to lower their tax bill? The number one thing is retirement accounts. I mean, a retirement account is a fantastic deal for a high earner to be able to shelter that money as it grows from taxation and also to get that arbitrage in rates from that high tax bracket they're in during their peak earnings years to a lower one when they retire. A lot of people don't realize that you get to fill up the brackets as you pull that money out of your 401k in retirement and that's a huge benefit. But the other thing they don't realize is how many different retirement accounts there are. For a typical corporate worker in America, you know, they got their 401k, and maybe if they're a super saver, they also do a Roth IRA on the side. But for a high income earner, oftentimes you can do a 401k with a profit sharing plan, which has a maximum this year of $56,000. If you're a sole proprietor, you're an independent contractor of some type, you can get an individual 401k. $56,000 you can put in there. That's $56,000 of your income that is not taxed this year at all and continues to grow in a tax protected way. In addition to that, there's other retirement accounts like a defined benefit or cash balance plan. Now, this one's a little bit more complicated. Basically, it's a pension. Well, it's really an IRA masquerading as a pension is what it is. But a doc in their 50s or 60s might be able to put $200,000 a year in there. You know, that's going to knock a huge chunk off your tax bill. A health savings account is one of my favorite investing accounts. I mean, it's triple tax-free. No taxes going in, no taxes as it grows, no taxes as it comes out. What's not to like about that? And then, of course, the backdoor Roth IRA you can use to still contribute to a Roth IRA, even once your income is beyond the limit. And so when you put all those together, a lot of times that is going to be your biggest tax break. A new thing this year that's beyond the retirement accounts, at least for self-employed doctors, is this new 199A deduction, the Qualified Business Income Deduction. And if you can rearrange your financial life in such a way as to qualify for that deduction, then that can be uh, very helpful as well. It's a large deduction for a lot of people. Unfortunately, a lot of doctors won't get anything at all out of it because they are a specified service business. So once they get above a certain income, which is not that high, for doctors, they don't qualify for that deduction anymore, except maybe on their side gig. You know, If they got a blog on their side, they can qualify for it, but they won't qualify based on their physician income. So that one is definitely worth looking at this year and learning more about to see if you're in one of those groups that actually qualifies for it.
1: So one thing I would like for you to dive into a little deeper as far as granularity mechanics of is the health savings account, because that's something that regardless of income you know, people, a lot of people have access to, but I feel like it's one of the most misunderstood things. And obviously a lot of people don't look at it as a retirement account at all. Yeah. Which is a huge mistake because it's your best retirement account, right? So let's just go over quickly the rules. When
0: you put the money into the HSA, which is this year's $3,500 for a single person, 7,000 for a family. And remember a family doesn't mean you're married. It can be you and a kid as well. It qualifies for the family contribution. $7,000 is not taxed on your taxes this year. And a lot of employers actually will put some or all of that money in for you. You know, there's kind of a match on it a lot of times for some people. So that's a great thing you can do with it. And then as it grows, just like inside a Roth IRA or 401k, it's not taxed. And when it comes out on the other end, as long as it's used for health care expenses, it comes out tax free. But even if you, for some reason, are super healthy and you never have health care expenses, when you get to age 65, you can pull that money out penalty-free and spend it on a sailboat. You have to pay taxes then if you do, but you can spend it on anything you like. So at its worst, it's as good as your 401k. You know, and that's why I call it the stealth IRA. A couple other things a lot of people don't realize. Number one, you can invest it. You don't have to leave it sitting in some piddly little savings account making 0.1% a year. You can put it in mutual funds, just like you can your 401k, just like you can your Roth IRA, et cetera. You can be invested in mutual funds for the long term. A couple of the best HSAs out there right now for investing are Fidelity, who had a brand new one this year, and Lively, who when Fidelity came out with their no-fee HSA, Lively quickly matched them. So they also have a no-fee HSA. But both of those have opportunities to invest in excellent investments and really have your money growing as it goes. And then the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is you don't have to take the money out of the HSA in the same year you incur the healthcare expense. You can save up the receipts for 20 years. You know, say you've got $50,000 worth of receipts after 20 years. You can pull all that money out and buy a sailboat with it, tax and penalty free, because you got the receipts to show the IRS that this indeed was spent on healthcare. And so that's another great way you can use an HSA. Now, I wouldn't go out and get a high deductible health plan if a high deductible health plan doesn't make sense for you, or if your employer or somebody else is paying the premiums for you. But if you do have a high deductible health plan, for sure, use the HSA as an investing account.
1: And when you say that you can invest it, is that something where you just have to contact your the company that you work for and have them handle it? I'm assuming that you know the company is offering it through a secondary company, lack of fidelity, or do you just get an account with that financial institution? You get to handle it yourself.
0: Well, the only reason to use the one your employer may be offering you, well, there's two reasons. One, they might be giving you some matching money of some kind. They might be putting some of your their money in there. And two, if it comes directly out of your paycheck as an employee, that money is not subject to payroll taxes. You don't pay Social Security or Medicare tax on it. And so that's one reason to use the employer's account if, if they're doing that for you. Now, I'm self-employed, so I don't bother going through an employer's account. I just open one up at Fidelity, you know, and put the money directly in there. But even if you have one through your employer, you can roll that money into your own personal HSA once a year. So there's no reason to leave it there long-term in the employer's account. They don't care, and you might as well just roll it over to someplace where you get a little bit better investments.
1: Okay. So even if your employer is kind of playing hardball with you, not helping you out, figuring out how to invest it, or they're not giving you that option, at the end of the year, you can roll it over into your own and then invest it how you wish.
0: Yeah, exactly. You can do that every year. You, know, you can't do it every month, but once a year, you're allowed to make a rollover.
2: So Jim, I kind of want to hop back to your story. Still within the tax realm or tax bracket of talking, I guess you could call it. And I think this was last year, I heard you on a podcast say that you're still doing your own taxes. And I know that as a guy with like 47 income streams, that must be a bear. So are you still doing your own taxes?
0: Yeah, I still am. You know what would keep me from doing them though? You know, I'm doing, I'm doing an S corp return by hand now, which is surprisingly not that big of a deal. It really is easier than a personal return, which I typically do on TurboTax. But the truth is you're just adding one thing a year, right? You got to learn how to do one new thing every year. Uh, You know, maybe a schedule C this year, maybe a schedule D next year, you know, you only got to learn one form. How hard of a deal is that? So it's a little bit of a game, I guess, me against the IRS, see how much money I get to keep, but just kind of gotten in that habit and stuck with it. You know, what would convince me to use a professional though, if I was still investing directly into real estate, if I had investment properties, the one year I had a really complicated tax return was when we were getting rid of our accidental investment property. And that was about enough to convince me to go get a professional. <laughs> you know, if I had had to do that for one more year, I think I would have gone and hired somebody because that was surprisingly complex to deal with rental properties.
2: Could we actually dig into that a little bit? I'm really curious about your accidental, and I'm sure the listeners are too, your accidental rental property.
0: Well, I, I mean, it, it's not an unusual situation for anybody who bought a house at the same time I did in 2006. Bought a, a little town home in Virginia while I was in the military. And the plan was to save up our down payment for our fancy doctor home there and uh, then sell it and move and buy the fancy doctor home when we got out in 2010. Well, as you recall, the housing market was red hot in 2006 and it was completely dead in 2010. And so we went to sell it and we couldn't sell it, not for any sort of reasonable price. I was willing to take a big loss on it but I wasn't going to give it away for a quarter of its value, which was literally what I would have had to do to sell at that point. So he kept trying to sell it for a year, maybe even a year and a half. And then finally we were like, forget it. We just can't. Let's put a renter in here just to slow down the losses. And so we put a renter in and they stayed for another, I don't know, three or three and a half years or something like that. We still lost money every year on it, right? Because we didn't buy it as a rental property. That wasn't the intent. The intent was to live in it for a few years. And so come 2015, we sold it, still at a loss, and I had a $50,000 write-off on my taxes that year from it. (laughs) So the one benefit of turning it into a rental property is, well, I got to write off the losses, which I wouldn't have been able to do if it was just a residence, but you know, it was not a great experience to be a long-distance landlord on a property that was not bought to be a rental property to start with. As you might imagine, that didn't end well.
1: So to move from, you know, maybe an investment that was accidental and didn't work out so well, to one that was a little more planned out and is working very well for you. If we have any bloggers listening, I was hoping you could dig into kind of your advertisement strategy, how you handle all that working with advertisers, the kind of money that you're making off your blog and how that's grown over the years.
0: Well, it didn't grow very much at all in the beginning, right? My first year I made $983 and I wrote it all off. You know, I had $983 worth of expenses. The second year, I think we made 5000 I think the third year, we made 20000 uh, The fourth year, it was six figures. And so finally, it kind of took off at that point. And part of that was that it was growing. You know, it was getting bigger. I had more readers and so on and so forth. But the big part of that jump was I just learned how to do it. You know, I learned how to monetize, how to be an online entrepreneur. And there are basically four ways to make money as an online entrepreneur. The first one is just to sell eyeballs, just to sell display ads and sponsorships and that sort of thing. They pay you some money, you advertise for them. And so that was the first way. The second way is you sell other people's products. This is basically affiliate marketing. You know, for example, somebody wants you to market their, you know, real estate investment or wants you to help them find people with student loans to refinance and they give you a little payment for everybody you bring them. Essentially, you're selling their product. The third way is to sell your own products. And what's common for bloggers and other online entrepreneurs are books, online courses, conferences. Those tend to be the big things. And so that's a big part of what we do is we sell, sell our own products. And then the fourth thing that people do is they sell their time. And in fact, that's the whole purpose behind a lot of websites is to get writing gigs, to get speaking gigs, to get consulting gigs, etc. And so you sell your time. And I've done all four of those over the years. Some years, some have been better than others. And it's just really varied as far as which one was the most successful. But those are kind of the four ways to make money. And you just got to think about it. Well, which one of these, which ones of these am I going to use? And, and you're right. After a few years, you do end up with, you know, 100 different streams of income. And that
2: feels good because you realize even if I lose a few, I've still got something pretty good going here. So I know that White Coat Investor, it sounds like it was just kind of on a rocket ship. It went from five to 20 to six figures and then beyond. At what point did it cross over and make, start making more than you were making as a physician?
0: Well, I mean, that fourth year, I can't remember what it was exactly. I want to say it was like $180,000. And I was a full-time emergency physician. I was a partner at the time. I think I was making something between three hundred fifty dollars and $400,000. So even at that point, the main gig was still medicine. But we probably had growth rates between 50 and 80% a year the next three or four years after that. And so, I don't know, within a year or two of that, it was making more than my physician income. But it wasn't until last August, actually, that I cut back from full-time practice of medicine. I'm still doing halftime because, you know, I spent my 20s learning how to do this. This is what I wanted to do with my life. And so I'm not really ready to stop just because I have something else that pays a lot better. So I'm continuing to, to practice medicine as much as I can. I want to keep it up at least that amount because I'm worried if I'm doing it less than that, that I won't be doing it well. And I think it's one of those things that if you're not doing it well, you need to get out altogether. And I'm afraid if I drop any more than half time that I won't be doing it well. And so that's that's kind of what my plan is for now. I'm trying to trying to have two halftime jobs. The problem is I have a half time job now and, and another one that's like one and a half jobs.
1: <laughs> so So I'm curious, when you do decide to make that transition to retire, kind of what that looks like, like how frugal will you need to be in retirement or want to be in retirement? What do you want to do with your time? Does it just keep blogging? Like, what are kind of what are your aspirations when you do step away from medicine?
0: Well, here's the deal, right? I think it's entirely possible that I step away from blogging before I step away from medicine. At this point, we're financially independent. We don't have to work for money. You know, we could just live off our nest egg not even selling the white coat investor. We could just live off the investments. And so at a certain point, you've got to go, what do you want to do with your life? And chances are good for most people, if they look at that, some small part of their life is still going to be what other people think of as work. It might be an encore career. Maybe you're a river guide. Maybe you're a ski instructor. I don't know. Maybe it's blogging, right? Maybe it's practicing medicine quarter time. I don't know. Uh, But for most people, they're not going to hang it up at 35 or 40 or 45 and say, I'm going to sit on the beach and do nothing, right? I mean, that's typically not what people do, even people who consider themselves very early retirees. And so for me, what I'm trying to do is take that perspective that I want to create a life that I don't need to escape from by going on vacation, by retiring, that I'm actually doing with my life what I actually want to do with my life. And so I'm gradually trying to mold my life into my ideal life. We sat down, my wife and I, two or three years ago, and we drew up a Venn diagram, right, of what our ideal life looks like and what our current life looks like. And we're trying to squish those two circles so they overlap as much as they possibly can so that our current life looks as much like our ideal life as it can. And I think we're getting pretty close, I probably need to draw a little bit better boundaries around my time that I'm spending on the White Coat Investor. But this is, you know, retirement to me. This is my dream life. You know, I get to practice a little bit of medicine on the side. I get to do all this fun stuff online. And I get to go skiing and I get to go on lots of vacations. I mean, a lot of people are like, I want to retire because I want to travel the world. I go on vacation every month, right? (laughs) I mean, this month I was in San Francisco. Next month I'm going to Canada to go hella skiing. In January, I was in Grand Cayman. In December, I was in Mexico. In November, I was in Florida, right? I mean, this is the life people are trying to retire to. And I'm like, if I can do that while I'm still working, why would I quit working? So that's kind of the way I look at it is that I'm trying to make my ideal life now without concern of whether now I have the money to do it. I have enough that I can live my life however I like. And I like to think that this is the way I actually want to live it. And
2: if that changes... I'll change what I'm doing. Two things you just said that I just can't let go is you're like, oh, I'm having a little bit of fun online and doing some medicine. So I, <laughs> you said those very tongue in cheek, very lightly. But I mean, you are super prolific. You are you have a weekly podcast, you have blog posts, you have an online course, you're a practicing physician saving lives. I mean, these are not just little things that you're doing on the side. <laughs> just where does your motivation come from? Do you have any sort of routine or schedule that Maybe our listeners can adopt and it's amazing the level of success that you've had. And I'm sure people would be curious in how they could replicate it in their own lives.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not one of those guys that's getting up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, and to try to be productive. I think I got up this morning at 730, had breakfast with my daughter. I went to the ski resort and went skiing. So I spent five hours up at Park City. I was actually able to write that off today. That was a business meeting, actually. I met with a real estate management company up there and that's who I skied with today. So I suppose that's business expense there. So whether you want to call that work or play, it sure felt like play. But we actually got a lot accomplished and built some relationships that I think are hopefully gonna be profitable in the future. So that and then I came home and I'm doing a podcast with you guys. You know, I mean this is my day. Does that sound like a terrible day? No, that's that's typical day in my life you know, yesterday I put in a lot more work. You know, I wasn't skiing quite so much. I wrote a post for a publication that I write for called ASEP now. And I finally got my new book, the White Coat Investors Financial Bootcamp up on Amazon to sell, got that formatted into the Kindle format. So I spent four or five hours yesterday morning doing that. This weekend, I wrote three or four blog posts a day for two or three days this weekend. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of what my life is when I'm not in the emergency department. This Friday and Saturday, I have the evening shift both days. I'll be in the emergency department taking care of people with chest pain and belly pain and knife wounds and overdoses and whatever comes into the ER. But clearly, I'm not, you know, Mr. Burnout. I'm doing a lot of trips and I'm having a lot of fun on the side. And so I can't really complain. A lot of doctors have it way worse off than I do. You know, there's still lots of doctors out there working 60, 80 hours a week. Uh, even after they're done with training. And so, you know, it's pretty hard to complain about working 20, which is about what I work in medicine a week.
1: Well, Jim, we just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. And this is a wealth of knowledge for a lot of people, you know, especially the physicians. But I think there's things here that everyone can see and relate to. So if people want to get more of your story and follow along with you, where's the best place for that?
0: I mean, the best place is just Google the words White Coat Investor. You know, that'll take you to my blog, my newsletter, my podcast, my book, trying to build a brand there, so it's easy to find everything. But we've actually got a, a Facebook group. We've got a subreddit. There's a forum on the website as well. And in fact, we have a scholarship program for high-income professional students. You know, uh, Anyone from pharmacists to nurse practitioners to physicians and dentists, that's who most of the applicants are, are medical students and dental students. But we gave away over $60,000 last year. And so that's another great way to, to get in touch with a white coat investor. But We're trying very hard to be found. You know, we're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook. It's all White Coat Investor. You know, if you just Google those words, it'll pop right up and and you'll be able to get uh, as much of my stuff as you can stomach.
2: Man, (laughs) you're absolutely crushing it. I just want to say that it's very admirable your hunger for wanting to help people because you don't need the money anymore. You're just doing this because you like helping. So, I mean, just thanks for all you do. And one question we like to ask all of our guests is what is your number one tip for someone on the path to financial independence? Thanks very much, by the way. It, uh, it
0: is something that really drives me, you know, the opportunity to help other people. Yeah, that's why I went into medicine, and, and frankly, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. I really do enjoy helping other people. One tip, you know, there's a lot of great tips out there. Watching your savings rate is obviously of critical importance. But I think one thing that may be really beneficial to your audience is something I've learned over the last five or ten years. Most people underestimate their ability to increase their income. For sure, increasing your income is not as hard as you think it is, whether that's working some overtime, asking for a raise, changing jobs, starting a side gig, et cetera. I'm continually impressed at how easy it is to increase your income when you really put your mind to it. And it makes everything else easier. Wiping out your debts is easier. Saving up for retirement is easier. Becoming financially independent is easier. It's all easier on a higher income. So I guess what I would say to people is, don't think you're limited on your income. Even if you already have a high income as a dentist or a physician, there are likely some things you can do to increase your income from here that will make your financial journey far easier.
1: Okay, Jim. Now here's the last question, but it is the wild card question. So that means I'm not prepared. Cody's not prepared, as we, <laughs> even though we should be. So you're certainly not prepared. Uh, you ready for this one? Let's have it. Okay. So you're an emergency room doctor. I want to hear what is the one situation you came into where you're like, how in the world did this happen? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, when people always like the wild stories from the emergency department, the ones they always like to hear the most are the foreign body stories. You know, <laughs> sometimes it's a kid putting a bead in their ear or a Lego up their nose. But more commonly, it's an adult with some story like I just slipped in the shower and that's how the shampoo bottle got in there, doc. <laughs>
2: that must be fun
0: (laughs) yeah the fun part about working in the emergency department is you really get to to interact with all segments of society and really get a chance to view how the other side lives and it's awesome to be able to help them too for sure you know it's very gratifying to remove a rectal foreign body and and be able to send somebody on their way with no harm done but uh you know it's it really is fun to just sit there and watch life happen It's a fascinating profession and something I've I've really enjoyed being involved in and almost felt bad cutting back on so that I could do the White Coat Investor because I enjoyed
2: it so much. Well, Jim, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show and thank you for all of the knowledge that you shared with our listeners. And so, yeah, just thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to be here. All right,
1: that was another really interesting episode and I have to admit, I can't believe that. As big of a name as White Coat Investor is, I didn't realize that he had that military connection like me, so I was a little embarrassed not to know that, but just a really cool story. What would you think about it, Cody?
2: Yeah, I mean, I feel like he's just kind of all over the map, and that's in the best way possible where... He just likes to dabble and try new things and learn new things. And I think he said he started investing when he was, what, 10 or 12 years old. He's doing like options trading, doing all this crazy stuff. And it's really just getting out of your comfort zone, learning that new skill, taking the leap. And I think he's the perfect person to showcase that the skills are our most valuable asset. And it's not the money that came first. It was literally just building one skill at a time. And now he's amassed so many of these skills and it doesn't seem like he's stopping anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to kind of look at his blog now and say like, oh, well, here's this like seven figure
1: earning website. But it started innocent enough, right? I mean, he was probably like a lot of people out there listening in the way a lot of us started, where he was just on these forums trying to contribute, trying to help answer people's
2: problems. And he started kind of realizing he had a niche and kind of went with it. And he said he was like one of the most prolific contributors. I think he said that he had like 10,000 comments. and He's like, what am I doing? Why am I not starting my own site? And that's kind of where the birth of the white coat investor happened.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people could look at this and say, why are you trying to, to spend all this time to help people who are earning $400,000 a year or whatever some of these physicians are earning? But the truth of the matter is they have very specific issues and needs, especially when you get into all the, the tax considerations at such a high salary. So it's cool to have somebody out there looking out for
2: them when most people in this
1: market may not think, hey, these people need help with finances.
2: And another thing that actually struck me as something that's completely different from the way I am, because I'm like so anti nine to five corporate job where you have to show up every day. And Jim said, if he had to give up one thing, we gave him the ultimatum. He said he'd rather give up the blog and the courses and all that stuff and keep practicing medicine. So it really shows you that like on this five spectrum, there are people who genuinely love what they do, but they still have the time to go down dab- using dabble very tongue in cheek here on his million dollar a year blog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally Cody and-
1: Whoa. What was that, Justin? Cody, it's the call to action. And the call to action this week is kind of what we were just talking about. It's focusing on how are you happy with your current job. So often in this, we always get focused on what financial independence looks like. But whether it's, you know, the extreme of looking for a complete career change, or just trying to find things in your day to day, like how do you make your work more enjoyable? What are the things that you do like about your job? How do you maximize those? And try to make sure you stay motivated in your current position and not feel like you're just drudging through until the end.
2: Yeah, man, I can totally relate to that. I think that's an awesome call to action. So like I just mentioned, I was at Camp Fi, which is Camp Financial Independence this last weekend. And a recurring theme was that like people are really unhappy or stuck in their jobs. It's less of a theme at these camps, but it's kind of a recurring theme in the people that we talk to, Justin. And I think that when people don't have the separation, like when they're living paycheck to paycheck, they have a job that's like decent, like call it a five out of 10 job, but they can't even create the space to kind of craft that job into a job they love. Like I'm sure Jim isn't spending his time doing stuff he hates because he's created that separation. He's created that space that we talk about so much in the financial independence space. And I mean, this is literally what I've been focusing on my entire career. While I was doing the banking, I was working on the side, doing all these little side hustle projects, and literally every incremental dollar gave me that much more power. And I've actually been working on a course for the past six months with Jay from Millennial Boss slash Fire Drill Podcast, if you also listen to her podcast. And we're calling it the Ultimate Side Hustle Course. So it's like something where you can do it two hours a day, you could grind and do 10 hours a day, as much or as little as you want, but it's how to basically just start making some side hustle income online. And so if you want to check that out, we have not launched it yet, but you can go to goldcityventures.com. That is the name of our website. But yeah, feel free to hit me up, check it out, get in the list. We'll update you when it's about to launch. But I really do think that when you can create that space, whether it's mental space, whether it's financial space, you can start to craft a day job that you like. You don't have to hate every day job. I know coming from me, it probably sounds weird because I'm like the notorious anti-9 to 5, anti-day job guy. But I think a lot of people... Despite what they may think, they're like a few steps away from a day job that they can actually enjoy and get fulfillment out of. So clearly Jim has done this. He's a master at this. He's a master of his craft. If you want to read a summary of the episode, see some of the links that we talked about, some of the resources, you can visit the show notes at thefyshow.com slash WCI. Now that stands for White Coat Investor. We just wanted to use the acronym so it was shorter for you guys to remember. And if you want to participate in some of the most riveting and awesome personal finance conversations on the internet, you can join our Facebook community at thefyshow.com slash community. And we actually just breached 50 reviews and ratings. So thank you guys so much. This makes Justin and I's jobs so much better. We have a lot more fulfillment when people say, hey, I just learned about this podcast. It's the best thing ever. So if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you've been Not clicking that five stars and not leaving that review. If you have five seconds, please do it. It really helps us out. Get better guests. If people see that we have a lot of ratings and reviews, they're like, oh, these guys are legit. They're putting out some good content. So thanks again for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show.